The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. I'm really, really, really hoping all the audio issues have been fixed. And I'm going to rely on you in our chat rooms, both Twitch and YouTube, to tell me if that's the case. We did some more tweaking today, and I'm hoping that we solved the problem. We're not too loud. We're not too soft. We're like like uh, Goldilocks's porridge, right? Just perfect. Um, but you'll let me know. Anyway, welcome to the program. We've got a very interesting show for you tonight. Jim Bruton will be our guest tonight. He'll be talking about his near-death experience. He's written about his near-death experience in a book that is called The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. He's had an incredible life. He's also uh, consider, considers himself an adventurer in addition to an author. And uh, he'll tell us all about all of that when we bring him on the program in just a little bit. So I, there are a couple of things. I noticed in our chat room, was it last night or the night before, that people were coming, commenting on the number of celebrities that have passed away in recent days. And the number is striking. You know, I've, you always grow up, and I don't know if it's the same for you. My mother always used to say everything happens in threes particularly bad things happens and happen in threes and you know a celebrity would die and you'd, and you'd sit there and wait for two more to die and more often than not they would but then again it could have been three or four more but you stop counting at three and you and you just assume that everything yes does come in threes but uh i think we've had more than three this time around and i'll tell you the one that really really is heartbreaking to me and it probably because most of these names i'm starting i'm getting to the point where i don't even recognize celebrity names half the time these names are just foreign to me. I don't know their work. I don't know their, if they're musicians. I don't know their music. And it's a sad admission to make, but whatever. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. But the, but the one that was really sad to me is Elvis Presley's grandson. He, um, first of all, he looks so much like Elvis. And if, you, if you've seen, if you've seen uh, pictures of Elvis when he was a young boy, or yeah, more of a young boy, like a teenager, his grandson looks identical to him. Now, his grandson was in his 20s, and he took his own life, which is another another uh, very, very sad part of all of this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I can understand how messed up that family might be. I mean, you've got Michael Jackson involved there. Lisa Marie Presley, uh, she's, a, she's a bit strange herself. And it's just it's just heartbreaking and it's very sad. And I'm under, I understood or understand that he was actually a musician too. That would have been really interesting to see his career develop. Uh, yes, Charlie Daniels, another one that was very very heartbreaking. But there have been many. So uh, you know, as 2020 continues to take its toll on everybody in every way, you know, you've seen those memes. Um, you know, 2020 is the uh, life is the Titanic and 2020 is the iceberg. And you know, there's a whole bunch of them out there. And it's really true. 2020 has been a brutal year. And it makes me wonder. I mean, we've had astrologers on the program that have talked about the age of Aquarius, you know, this shifting of ages happening and how it's going to create things like this. I'm starting to believe there's more to that than I had originally given given credit for. So we'll have to get an astrologer on to talk about this a little bit more. Now that we've got over six months of this year under our belts, and we can say for sure that this has been no ordinary year. I encourage you to go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's very easy to find. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. When you find the paranormal page, subscribe to it. There's no fee or anything to subscribe on YouTube. 
Uh, also, our Twitch page is very, very active. It's becoming a great place. By the way, thank you. So many people uh, were new subscribers in the last few days. I appreciate every one of you joining our group and becoming part of our Twitch page. It, when you subscribe, it opens you up to some things, some special benefits, plus there's no ads, that kind of thing. So if you go to, if you go to Twitch, you can follow for free, which we encourage you to do that. But if you want to subscribe, there's a fee. Or if you want to avoid the fee, you can link your Amazon Prime account to the Twitch subscription, and uh, there's no fee for that. But you just have to redo it each month. So that's my self-promotion. We've got a lot of great things going on, and um, we need to talk about them every once in a while. We're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll bring our guest in. Again, tonight we're going to be talking with Jim Bruton about his near-death experience, plus what his life was like before the near-death experience and how it changed afterward. There's a, It's a really great story, and I'm looking forward to having Jim tell us all about it. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're going to be talking with Jim Bruton. Jim has led an incredible life from braving the wilderness of some of the most remote locations on the globe to inventing the satellite video phone for global news coverage. He's seen a lot. Um, but his globe trotting could not prepare him for the most fascinating journey that he would ever experience. And that's after a plane crash brought him to the brink of reality. And we're going to talk with Jim about his unique near-death experience, plus the life before it, the life after it, and of course, the in-between. Jim, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have you with us tonight. Hi, JV. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. First thing I have to ask you, because I have to ask everybody this, given the craziness going on in the world around us, uh, are you in a good, safe spot without too much of uh, what we have to worry about um, with this coronavirus stuff? Yeah, I'm out here in the countryside of Connecticut, and actually um, I'm having a pretty good time of it all. I'm just observing everything and paying attention to my book and my inner studies and just kind of watching it all go by. Well, that's good. Uh, not everybody is quite as lucky as you. I am the same way. I'm in, I'm in a rural area. We haven't really been affected by the virus itself. We've been affected by the shutdowns and all of that, because New York State is New York State, regardless of where you live. Um, but fortunately, we haven't had a lot of the, of the pandemic uh, hit us here. So I guess that's a good thing. I just encourage everybody to be smart, be safe, you know, do the things that, that are being uh, suggested to try to keep yourself healthy, if not for yourself, at least for the people that you come in contact with. I think that's fair advice, Jim, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Just sort of keep a low profile. And, you know, to the extent you can use the time to enjoy life, uh, pay attention to some things you may normally be too busy about and do it. You know, I think it's kind of an interesting parallel here to talk a little bit about the coronavirus pandemic, because I think one of the things, if anything good is coming out of it, I think many people are starting to recognize the things that are important in their lives, like their family, like, uh, you know, the things they love to do and they want to get out and live again and do these things. And I'm going to say, jump out on a limb here. That's probably part of what happened to you after you had your near death experience. 
It is. It's a bit of a, a reboot, if you will. You know, I've gone from being Jim Point uh, 1.0 to Jim 2.0 <laughs> with the reboot of a near-death experience. And I think it's similar to this COVID thing. I think even if people were to say, well, you know, I don't know if I like my job that much, I think you know, either a dose of not working for a while or working from home makes them realize how much they need that face-to-face or human interaction and so it does give us a chance to sort of step back and take stock of some of the important things in life. We're going to spend some time talking about that experience and how it changed your life, you know, what path you followed after it when you had the experience and you came back from it. But before we get into that, let's talk about a little bit about the pre-near-death experience, Jim Bruton. Um, tell us about your life at that point. Right. Well, um, I guess in, you know, on the cocktail napkin version, you could say that my life was one of realizing childhood dreams. As you know, middle, many little boys growing up in the 1960s, uh, you know, we had a lot of optimism because that was the decade of the space race, right? right you know, we were right. going to go to the moon, and so all of all of us uh, kids, you know, reading Popular Mechanics, looking for the flying saucer to be in every garage or rocket pack to work or something like that. We were we were just excited about each month seeing what new development was going to get us closer to that idealistic future. I also watched, you know, wildlife programs on television and said, gosh, you know, I how do I do that for a living one day? And then my dad became a pilot and, you know, I I got interested in aviation, the earliest stages uh, or the earliest years of aviation. And if I were to take each one of those things I was fascinated by as a child, I've gotten to do all of them. I uh I was interested in wildlife filming, and I got to live in Africa off and on for 14 years, and I have an Emmy for work with National Geographic. I was I loved science fiction, and I was able to figure out how to shrink a television truck into a backpack, allowing wow. me to transmit live video from all over the world at, in places that were formerly impossible. And that changed the way that news is gathered, because eventually I became a war correspondent for NBC News and you know, took my system out to a lot of the war zones. And then as far as aviation, um, you know, I got to settle down here in Connecticut and build a replica World War I fighter and then another little airplane, and that's the one that kind (laughs) of delivered me to my near-death experience, but we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, not only is the word adventurer maybe a bit of an understatement, it sounds like you may be a little bit of a tinkerer and an inventor, all of the above. A little bit of everything. You're right. I think I think all of it is just born of an insatiable curiosity. I'm curious about people, foreign lands, animals. Uh, you know, you see something interesting that uh, you know involves technology, and sometimes you think back and uh, say, "How how can I use that to better tell the story or better help people communicate or things like that?" You know, always pushing the boundary. Do you think that we're losing some of that curiosity? Because I think you're absolutely right. Uh, children that were growing up in the in the 50s and 60s the space race was real and we were being told uh about how amazing these feats were these these feats of engineering these feats of science these these uh baby steps at times but sometimes giant leaps to use a bad uh pun uh as we moved toward getting a man on the moon uh it was fascinating for particularly kids that didn't have an internet to go to or or even much television really i mean you had some limited choices but certainly not what we have today as we get over media saturated here do you think we're starting to lose the ability to have that same curiosity in younger generations 
I do wonder, and it's mostly uh, because of how we express that curiosity. You know, when we were little, we'd be out, you know, riding our bikes or yeah. on skateboards. We'd be building tree houses or forts and playing army. I mean, we learned with our bodies. Now we seem to learn virtually more. And so while we still have imaginations, I think the ways in which we express that um, we are seeing a, a change, and so I'm, I'm not sure where it's going just yet, but anytime I see kids out there actually playing you know, in real life yeah. with real things, I, it sort of takes me back to my own childhood. Well, and I think that maybe uh, there's something else at play as well. Now, I happen to be a bit of a video gamer. My son and I play a lot of games together, and it's one of the things we do. We have a lot of fun with it. But one of the things I know is that a lot of kids spend a lot of time in front of screens like that, and they don't have to use their imagination much because it's all presented to them in a media format on a screen. You know, whether it's a game. I mean, our games were purely processes of our imagination. We didn't have a video screen in front of us to to play it out for us. We had to do it in our heads. Um, but kids today, they, they get, it's all at their fingertips and it's, it's it almost, uh, in some cases, virtual reality. It seems very, very real. That's true. And you know, you think about it too, when, when kids are playing in the real world with each other, I mean, there, there are social skills going on yes. and, you know, there's rough and tumble going on there. There are all sorts of things. And, you know, if two kids get into a tiff, they work it out. They figure it out. That's no right. one has to go on Facebook and, you know, brand <laughs> someone as a jerk and everybody has a comment about that. You know, that's, it really has changed the landscape of, of our young society as well as, um, you know, like I said, the um, the practice of things like science fairs or just, you know, other ways in which kid can, kids can exhibit curiosity. Yeah, I, you know, I know this isn't really the topic that we were going to talk about, but just con- contrasting it with the things that you've done and how you started with such curiosity, it's, it's a bit striking. And I know that as a musician as well, uh, I know that local schools are having a heck of a time getting kids to learn musical instruments. You know, there's no instant gratification. It takes a lot of work. And their time is generally occupied, if not by sports, uh, by by uh, internet browsing or smartphones or, or video games. So hopefully we, we get this resolved because I think we're going to lose a lot in our culture if we don't. Yeah, we have to stay curious and we just have to stay in that constant state of experimentation. And when you mention music, I mean, learning music could be real key to learning math because right. math is... I mean, music is math. I mean, it's, yep. it's incredible how it's woven into it. And so I think if kids are learning music in their gut, then there can be learning math in their instincts. And I think we would just see a, a big improvement all around there. Music is part of us as, a, as human beings. So you had a an insatiable curiosity. You developed that as a child. Uh, you kind of, you, as you said, gave us the cocktail napkin version of things you've done. But uh, tell us a little bit more about your experiences, because you've seen a lot. Yeah, I have. I've I've been very fortunate that way. So, yeah, it all started with really going to Africa to learn how to make wildlife films. And while I was over there, uh, it's a very different experience than going and learning how to make films in Hollywood, because there's an awful lot in 
making films about animals that you cannot script. <laughs> you know, if the lion is yeah. laying in wait by the water hole or in the bushes, you know, you don't know when they're going to jump out. The ostrich egg hatching or the zebra giving birth, you just can't plan these things out. But at the same time, you're learning an awful lot about animal behavior, uh, the local geography, the local uh, people who live there, some who still live in you know very primitive way. Um, and then, you know, you're learning how to fix Land Rovers that break down in the middle of sand dunes 300 miles from people. So it's really a holistic way of learning to live and how to live in harmony with your environment. Because obviously, in making films about wildlife, you want to have as little influence in that environment as possible. So it's pretty cool that way. And then, you know, living in a magical place like Africa, just nothing beat that. And then it was one day when I was filming a sunset that a Disney film crew came up, and that was the first satellite telephone I ever saw. It was a little more primitive than what you might see now, but mm-hmm. it was a film crew scouting a location and you know here i was like i said 300 miles and days away from anyone and they had this instant communication on top of a sand dune and i just remember thinking wow that just looks like you know something out of one of my science fiction dreams and basically i i learned how to push video over this thing so think of taking a television satellite truck and shrinking it into a backpack and you've got the idea it took me a little while to get there uh but i but i was able to do it and for a while i was the only person able to do it and with that i still produced the titanic expedition for discovery channel got them yahoo side of the year um i integrated it into telemedical systems for nasa and yale where i was a, a lecturer and these were little uh, biometrics you could wear or swallow that were destined for the space station. So we uh, took them up to Mount Everest for two years and tested them up there, which was pretty cool. And I retraced the journey of the Magi, you know, the three kings from yeah. Microsoft through, you know, the Middle East. And that was pretty cool. We went live on Christmas Eve from Manger Square in Bethlehem. And so we just had a lot of fun, at, you know, playing with the technology and not just live video from places that had never had live video before, but just uh, to really prospect that new medium of interactivity through the Internet and just really plug people into the adventure all the more, that was incredibly satisfying. Eventually, you know, the dot-com bubble burst, and it was just the big news agencies that uh, could use the technology, and that's when I joined NBC News and uh, became a war correspondent for them. So uh, I was going to ask you what time frame this was, but when you referenced the dot com bubble, that was two thousand, right? That, that's when it all burst. Yeah, I remember. I lost. I lost a lot in that in that bubble, sadly. <laughs> um, but so so, what was the time frame for your use of this particular technology that you developed? Was it you know the ten years prior, five years prior? Let's see. I I built my prototype in ninety. Okay. And what what happened was we we realized we needed to wait for some digital satellites to launch. The the analog satellites and the analog compression were intermittently successful, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the superior error correction when the satellite signal is going from Earth up 22,500 miles and then back again. So once the digital satellites launched in 96, I was ready to rock and roll and that's when I pulled the covers off my system and you know started actually doing something with it, which was pretty fun. You know, once again, when you, when you talk about or you contrast what we live like and how we live now versus even that 
time frame, which wasn't that long ago, even though um, from a technological standpoint, it seems like primitive age. Because now we, you know, we're basically all walking around with a a supercomputer in our hands that can communicate in so many different ways. Uh, in 1994, 95, and 96, only a very few people had cell phones, and they were tended to be in a bag that they kept in their car, and you know, with a big antenna, magnetic antenna, they stuck on the roof of the car. That's true, and it was. I mean, we've definitely seen an incredible quantum leap from, like you say, 20, 25 years ago. And now everyone can be a citizen journalist, as we're seeing on television every night, especially with all the uh, social justice uh, issues going on all over the country. Anyone who has a cell phone can be a journalist now. You just start shooting. Maybe you add some commentary, and it can be on the evening news quite easily. Do you think that helps, or do you think that is chaotic? Well, I would say that sort of depends on how the news agencies edited. I think that yeah. final filter is where your bias enters the picture. Right. I think a bunch of people just collecting footage itself uh, can tell a story, and it can hold some people accountable, the ones they're videoing. And I'd like to think that's what could really happen. But as we all know, you know, depending on your flavor of uh, news you like, you can watch any channel and by its editing, you can pretty much see anything you want. <laughs> That's so, true. You know, we can have this mass body of information, but how we filter it in that final mile is what really spins the story. Again, another topic that we didn't really intend on speaking about tonight, but given your experience, I'm really curious about your opinion. Uh, what do you think about what I would call, and maybe this is a mischaracterization of it, but what I would call uh, the attack on free speech, because I really think there's one going on. There is, and I'm, I am concerned about it. But, you know, I'll be honest, uh, when before, you know, the last election, there were riots in the streets, depending on, you know, which candidate was showing up to talk about, you know, right. being elected. And we're sort of seeing the same thing now, uh, sometimes directed, you know, politically like that, sometimes as an infiltration to otherwise noble pursuits regarding social justice. We don't want any of these good movements to get hijacked by so few. Um, just like, you know, uh, al-Qaeda, for most people, could be said to have hijacked Islam. You know, m most Muslim people are just like us. They just want to live life peacefully. They want right. to have a good time, make friends, and things like that. But then you get this, you know, crazy few people that get in there, and like I say, infiltrate it, and it just turns it rotten for everybody. So I do think... We need to remain vigilant on our rights to free speech and peaceful assembly and the right to vote for who we want. And I think what we have to do is just everybody needs to stop shouting and everybody yeah. needs to start communicating. Because when everyone's shouting, no one's listening and there is no communication. And we need to allow for the fact that people, friends, close people, relatives can have polar opposite views. But if we can just keep talking then we might actually get somewhere one day. But as long as everybody's yelling, no one's getting anywhere. I just I just really cringe when I hear stories about people who express their opinion and they lose a job because of it. They lose friends yeah. because of it. They become ostracized in whether it's social media or even mainstream media because of it. Uh, and I'm sure you uh, were paying attention to what's happening, in a, happening at the New York Times recently. 
Yeah, I mean, again, like you say, and, and this is weird because, you know, New York Times has always been touted as a very liberal newspaper. Yeah. And yet, you know, the definition of liberal, you would think it would allow for a variety of views, and yet it's becoming <laughs> polar opposite to that, where yeah. it's almost like groupthink. You must yeah. think according to the group and sort of the herd mentality, and if you don't, you're kicked out. And, you know, it's. I hope, I hope it's just one of those things we're going to pass through and get back to normal, but it's only going to happen because people are pushing against it. If we don't, it's just going to happen. You also, uh, somewhere along the way, uh, during all of your adventures and your, your uh, experiences, developed an interest in paranormal ideas and topics. When did that happen for you? You know, I think that was one of those early dreams, too. First of all, it just started by being curious about God. You know, like, how does this work? You know, does, is there really a be- being who knows how many bricks are in that building over there? <laughs> Something silly like that <laughs> right. when I was little. But honestly, I was uh, pretty soon on, I was pointed the difference between uh, spirituality and religion. Uh, when I was young, I went to church to ask all my questions, and the preacher was too busy, so I came back the next week, and he was gone, and I asked the lady next to me, where's the minister? And this was in 69 down in Florida. And she said, oh, we got rid of him. And I said, why? She says, because he married his daughter to a black man. I thought, oh, wow. what? Yeah. And I just knew that was insane, but I knew I'd just better shut up or yeah. the crazy people were going to kill me. And it turned out it was, it was Reverend Coolidge, who was a Cherokee Indian, and he'd married his daughter, Priscilla Coolidge, who was the slightly older daughter of Rita Coolidge. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's four houses down from me was this church. And, and what happened is... Uh, Reverend Coolidge married his uh, older daughter, Priscilla, to Booker T of Booker T and the MGs. MGs. You know, I oh, think he opened man. for the Beatles one time. The man was a legend in terms of music. Green talent. Onions, It was yeah. a very natural thing that two people like that might meet and fall in love. And for no worse sin than just you know him marrying his daughter to Booker T, they threw him out of the church. And on that day, I think that was a real spiritual turning point for me. And I think it was God saying, listen... I'm glad you're asking questions about me, but if you walk the ways of man, because man created religion, you're going to come out with more questions than answers. But if you walk it with me, we're going to color outside the lines. I'm going to take you to places a lot of people say, don't go there, it's scary. But where I don't give you answers, I will give you understanding. Because sometimes answers are a one-shot deal, but understanding lasts a lifetime. And honestly, that's defined the path I've followed since then. It's pretty much a direct connection. Wow. Now, is it okay that I'm still a little bit uh, in awe of this Rita Coolidge uh, Booker? Uh, M- I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's Booker I T. Know, right? I mean, Green Onions was the hit for Booker T and the MGs, right? It was Green Onions, wasn't that? Yeah, one I believe of so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Rita Coolidge with Your Love is lif- Lifting Me Higher. As a guy who's been in radio th- over 30 years, you know, these, these songs are constantly banging around my skull anyway. Um, that's really fascinating. And when you start asking questions, particularly about what I would say is probably one of the biggest questions you can ask is what is God and what is that all about? Uh, and you start looking into some of these other ideas like ghosts or other phenomena. Did you find anything in that realm that started to pique your curiosity as well? That's a great, great question, JV. Uh, well, remember this was in the 60s, right? So as, as we were getting toward, and, and the, the incident I just described uh, at the church was in June of 1969. And 
you know, people were getting interested in Eastern religions. You knew you had the Beatles with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yeah. Uh, you had sitars in music now, uh, and and you know the subjects about ESP and Kreska. I mean, you had some dawning awareness about something a little more than what we'd been spoon fed for gosh, almost two thousand years. And I think I was just sort of along with that ride too. Again, with that curiosity, so I would read up on. You know, I would read things that were Buddhist or Hindu, or I might, um, you know, hear about Taoism, you know, sort of the most esoteric religion to me. And then, of course, study up on things like ESP and whatever. Well, with that sort of opening my eyes that there might be something different than what I would hear every Sunday, I uh, I got really interested in uh, Eastern paths, because they were less judgmental. Yeah. It was okay to ask questions, and people wouldn't shout you down and, you know, call you a heretic. They they were just very open to um, exploration and discovery. And so finding that as my natural inclination, I pretty much pra- practiced, um, you know, following an Eastern path for about 23 years until I was finally initiated into it 23 years later. And on that day, I said, why the wait? And they said, we don't seek to increase our numbers. Basically, we don't need anything from you. And I thought, now, this is a path I think I really like. You know, they have what I need, but there's really nothing I can bring to the party that they need. I find more and more people, regardless of what their particular religious background might be, are finding these Eastern teachings to be very, very, uh, not just welcoming, but but uh, comforting as well. And uh, I think most people from the outside looking in might say, well, they, they, you, you, it has to be one or the other. Either you're a Christian or you're one of these things or you're one of those things. But I don't think that's true. I think you can actually find uh, some value in all of these ideas and they can come together and, and provide something very fundamental. I think you nailed it in the way you structured that sentence, the sort of either or approach. And that's the difference, and that's kind of the problem with the Western thought. In our world, we're very duality-minded. You're either this or you're that. We're very binary. You're either going to burn in hell or you're going to heaven. You know, there's no in-between. However, over in the East, instead of it being an or mentality, it's more of an and mentality. Buddhists live next to Hindus. I mean, no problem. I mean, it's, it's really more inclusive because it doesn't require a duality to appreciate where you are and where the other person is and where you're going. It's everybody's on their own path. As they say over there, the target is one and the archers are many. That's it. Simple as that. You, you don't have to judge others. You can just go on your own path, and you know, occasionally you'll meet up with other companions along the way. You'll enjoy the journey for a time, and then you'll part company when it's time. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Jim Bruton tonight. He is the author of a book called The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime, which talks about a near-death experience that we haven't quite gotten to yet. We will be talking about it, I promise, because I know that's what I've been promoting and, and talking about for the last week or so. But so much of this is so fascinating, and it really sets up uh, what happened to you, and it, it, it kind of explains why things changed afterward as well. When we talk about paranormal experiences prior to your NDE, Jim, did you have anything that you would, an experience that you would consider to have been quote unquote paranormal? Other, I mean, you had a curiosity, but did you have any experiences yourself? I did uh, a couple of times. I just had this um, experience, like. Don't, it's hard to explain, but uh, it's like seeing the stars within my head. It, and it was a very 
transcendental feeling. I felt like this incredible peace, like I'm one with the universe, and it was like I, like I literally could, the inside of my head was a planetarium. And then as I studied more, you know, some of the Eastern paths that believe in these higher planes, the first plane is the astral plane, and it's, it's said as soon as you leave here, you go through this starry sky. So it was like I was right on the threshold of having this kind of an out-of-body experience, if you will. And I did have some out-of-body experiences as well. Um, you know, some would either be visiting my past or my future or, or something like that. Very, I don't think I ever really had one that was in this time, like, you know, going into my neighbor's house or anything like that. It all seemed to have much more meaning about uh, where I was going and the choices I'd be making. So prior to your near-death experience, you said you were having out-of-body experiences, and in some of those experiences, you would visit your past. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily time travel or what it is, but explain a little more about that. Tell us a little more. Sure. Well, I was I was always interested in the martial arts, and one time when I was uh, living down in Puerto Rico, for I went to university down there, um, I had an out-of-body experience where I saw myself as a, as a samurai, you know, a Japanese swordsman back in the like late 1500s, early 1600s, and I was helping lead the people in a revolt against the local shogunate, you know, the, the local king, if you will. Yeah. And the reason I have a lot of detail about that is because later on, when I was more properly studying kendo, the way of the Japanese sword, I just all of a sudden felt in, uh, an instinct or a, a desire to make my own suit of samurai armor. And it took me three years to do it. But when I completed it, a friend of mine who worked as an armorer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art gave me a book given to him by a Japanese armorer who was visiting. And in there were like the chainmail plate patterns I had just made from memory, and there they were exactly, and oh, it wow. came from 1575. And also, when I would spar, people said, "Wow, where'd you train?" I said, "I, I just—it's—it's it's instinct. It just kind of came with me." So, there's that. But also, um, just before the first Gulf War in '91, '92 of uh, in Iraq, I had an out-of-body experience where I saw myself in the middle of the night um, in the Middle East, getting on a military helicopter. And as we took off, uh, this guy with a turban jumped out of nowhere with a shoulder-mounted missile and blew us out of the sky. And, you know, there was this big, bright white flash, and then all of a sudden I was sort of floating down in this uh, it, dusk into this neighborhood. I mean, basically, I was dead, but, you know, this was showing me I was still alive yeah. and the futility of trying to tell people, hey, I'm alive, because you don't have a physical body to do that with. And... What's really interesting is, say, say that was in 1988 or 89, Fast, and, and at this time I'd taken a break from wildlife filming. I was down in Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting with my parents, and, you know, just sort of taking a break, renovating a house, things like that. All of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, years later, uh, in 2003, I'm now working for NBC News. I'm standing at an air base in Kuwait watching my name on a board uh, for selection to be embedded with either the Army, the Marines, or the Air Force. I saw my name move across the board to the Marines, to either land or air. It moved to air, to fixed wing or rotary wing, meaning helicopters. It right. went to rotary wing. And I stood there and said, oh, hell, I'm here to die, because I remembered in full that out-of-body experience I had. 
However, and in the night of the assault, I was in helicopter squadron for about two weeks, and I was in one on the assault on Baghdad that first night, and the helicopter next to us went down. Now, I didn't die. I think the reason I didn't was because of choices I made between the time I had that out-of-body experience and the time I was there ready, you know, to have <laughs> to have the full experience and see what's on the other side. Yeah. And I think that's because just before, and I mean literally less than a year before I went over to Iraq, I met a widow with three babies here in Connecticut. And I don't know what got into me, but it seemed like that made sense at the time, so that's what I did. And I think it was that choice of wanting to live for something greater than myself and to, you know, really help. I think that's probably what kept me alive. I'll just be honest. That's what I think. So even then... Some of the dynamics that would be playing out in my near-death experience that happened three years ago, I think we're already starting to be put into motion. Yeah, I mean, uh, your your out-of-body experiences sound a little bit like uh, a, 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 a transportation to past lives. Also t- sounds uh, obviously uh, prophetic and uh, precognitive. Uh, what do you think the source of that is? Why, why do you think you were having those experiences, again, prior to the near-death experience? Well, I think time can be pretty fluid. I mean, looking at it from a quantic, quantum mechanics point of view, you know, when they entangle two particles, they've actually entangled two particles that are radioactive with a definite half-life. And by putting one of them in a particle accelerator and accelerating it up toward the speed of light, they can actually change its time frame respective to its entangled mate. But what's interesting is now that they're essentially in two different times, whatever they do to one instantly happens to the other. And the sort of the so the scientific understanding of this is the following. There could be two particles that are entangled, one at the beginning of time and one at the end of time. And whatever you do to one, you automatically do to the other, which means that the only time that exists between those two is the present, that our concept of past, present, and future is just an illusion because, and you can see it exemplified even more when people talk about how they communicate and how they receive information on the other side, that here we need linear understanding to process information. Like this this show you're recording tonight, uh, if I wanted to download it, I could download this 70-minute show in about two minutes on the computer. But if I look at it like that, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros. I need the linear information processing of a media player to play it out over that 70 minutes to understand it. Yet over on the other side, where there is no time or time moves very, very slowly, there is no linear layout to the story. You get the whole enchilada all at once. And so... That's the difference of how our mind processes information over there and over here. So that's why I think when you have an out-of-body experience, it could just as easily be into the future, the present, or the past. A lot of science is starting to substantiate what you just said, and you did a really great job of describing it. But this whole idea of entanglement, uh, it's, it's somewhat new, at least to me, but it seems to be gaining a lot of steam in the scientific community. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, there's something very serious going on in relation to this, to this idea. You're right. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these truths that are sometimes, um, 
you know, they could even be stated in, in some ancient Eastern texts, but there's just enough ambiguity to them that we go, hmm, that, that sounds like something that would be good on a fortune cookie. But these are some of the truths that are also coming out of things like quantum physics, like the superpositioning of probabilities in a single moment, and uh, which just means every moment is, you know, full of possibilities, uh, but also the entangled things and how that can be demonstrated and what that might mean for us. I mean, it really is getting more esoteric by the day. I mean, so much so that I think a lot of us are just waiting for quantum physics to say, okay, we just proved God, here it is. And everybody goes, wow, here it is. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. Do you think that moves us closer to proving God or or some kind of intelligent matrix or whatever you want to call it? Sure. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, in that I already believe because I feel like I've already experienced. Sure. You know, it's kind of like, I'm just waiting for the rest of the world to catch up, and however they do it, it's fine by me. Um, we're, we're about ready to start talking about your near-death experience. I'm going to go to break first. Uh, the book, before we go to break, though, the book, um, The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime, this tells the story of your near-death experience? It does. It it talks about what we're talking about now, sort of, you know, my life pre-NDE, mm-hmm. and then the near-death experience itself, pointing out also how it's very unique from your common garden variety near-death experience. And then uh, I, as I start to distill the experience into integrating it into my life, what sort of surprises come as a result? Where can people get a hold of the book, The In-Between? It's on Amazon. Uh, we're, we're changing up uh, the book covers right now, so we've pulled it for a couple of days. But uh, on Amazon, um, you can just type in the title, The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. Uh, the, audi- the Audible book uh, is there, the Kindle, and the um, hard copy as well. We are talking with Jim Bruton tonight. He is an author and an adventurer, also a near-death experiencer. And we're going to get into his near-death experience in just a moment. I do want to remind you who's coming up on the program tomorrow night. Paul Leslie will be our guest. Paul is going to talk about ghosts and the paranormal, as we do quite often on this show. There will be no show Friday night. It will be Saturday night instead. So Booze, Brews, and Bros, which is normally our Friday night feature, will be moved to Saturday night because I have a band gig. Those gigs have been very rare in the last six months. So uh, I'm, I took it. I'm going to do it. That's, t- that's going to be Friday night. And then Saturday we'll come back and do the show, Booze, Brews, and Bros. And then Monday night, Craig Weiler will be to, here to talk about psychics. He is a psychic skeptic, but he has changed his mind over the years. So that'll be pretty interesting as well. I don't like you looking in the camera that way, Teresa, if that's what you're looking at. Uh, join us in our chat rooms. There are two of them simultaneously active right now. One is in Twitch. And the other is in YouTube. And we have quite a few people and a lot of great conversation going on in both of those channels. And I want to say hello to everybody in chat. Thank you for being there. It makes it, it provides an energy to the show that would be sorely lacking if you weren't there. So thank you for doing that. Again, tonight we're talking with Jim Bruton. We're going to talk about his near-death experience. We've been talking about his life prior to that experience. And Jim, set us up for what happened to you uh, to, for you to have this near-death experience to begin with. Sure, JV. So, as I mentioned, I, I settled down, quote unquote, and I uh, started building these old airplanes 
that I liked. And the first one was a 1917 uh, reproduction of a World War One fighter triplane like the Red Baron flew, but mine was black and white stripes. And then I built a second airplane that literally looked like something out of a Disney cartoon. Imagine a soapbox derby car with a wing behind your head, one over your head, and a big motorcycle engine right in front of your face. And you had the idea. Yeah. It was on the second test flight of this thing that I lost my engine and couldn't make it back to my airstrip. So the only other place to kind of aim for that wasn't forested or rocky and hilly uh, was a small pond at a nearby Boy Scout camp. So I aimed for that, and I overshot the bank and hit all these trees at about 70 miles an hour. So again, you, know, you can imagine what that would look like to a soapbox derby car. And when I, when I finished crashing, there was no plane left around me. It was all matchsticks. And oh, wow. I broke all my ribs. I ruptured both lungs. My right leg looked like a pretzel. I had a hole in my back from the battery breaking loose and hitting me. And other than that, I was fine. But uh, luckily, a man was over fishing nearby and was able to run over and keep me propped up where I could gasp for air until a helicopter came in and pulled me out and flew me up to the uh, trauma center at uh, in Hartford. So once I was there, um, you know, they put me into a breathing machine and, you know, shoved a breathing tube down my throat and had all kinds of tubing coming in and going out of me. And I was escaping the restraints because I was just being a handful and they uh, mentioned that, you know, to my family that because I had multiple six-plus-hour operations coming up, and they could lose me at any time, it was best to just put me into a coma. So that was, a, that was an agreement, and they did. And obviously, you know, between the physical shock and anesthesia and coma-inducing drugs, I'm just kind of trying to put this all together. But my best guess and the easiest way to tell it is that when they put me into a coma here, that's when I started my near-death experience over there. Uh, there wasn't going through the tunnel or seeing angels or, you know, long-lost loved ones or having a life review or anything like that. It was more like I was teleported into this apocalyptic landscape. And this is on my website on inbetweenproductions.com. You can read the story there and see uh, the depiction of where I went and what I experienced there. But, you know, just imagine New York City a thousand years after a meteor hits or a nuclear blast or something, just a totally dead and ruined city. And these huge storm clouds were up above my head that just looked like they were about to unload, you know, the mother of all storms. And while I was looking out over this desolate landscape, I got hit by this wave of nausea. And I just remember bending over thinking, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, I heard this noise off to my left, and I saw this basically a four-story high sculpture of an egg that was made out of lattice. You know, it had a lot of open areas you could see through it. And as I looked through those openings, I could see these small movements. And I, I went over and looked closer, and they were freely suspended in air, a certain kind of gear called a sector gear. A sector gear is a partial section of a full gear, you know, that goes all the way around with the little teeth. And you usually find them in clocks because they're meant to sweep back and forth. And the internal uh, logic to this was that as I looked at them, a video feed played in my head of what they represented. And I realized these were events in my future. And Obviously, this, they were designed to have a beginning and a middle and an end to their movement. That's why they were clock-like. And it's, it's interesting. Some of the gears were very in focus, 
perhaps indicating a greater probability of occurring. Some were very ghost-like. Maybe they weren't so probable, but they were still possible. And sometimes as they were moving, they would just pass through each other. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I stuck my hand through that latticework to just see if I could touch them. And when I did, one brushed by my hand and caused me immense pain. And I reflexively grabbed it and jerked it out and just sort of threw it over my shoulder. And when I did that, all the rest of the gears started kind of like recalibrating for the loss of one and spinning around and resetting. And that's when I said, you know, what is this thing? And a disembodied voice suddenly was with me and stayed with me throughout the whole experience. And it said, this is the future birthing into the now. This is the process of becoming, making it even a more poetic statement that all this was going on within the construct of what looked like an egg. And as I as I saw these gears spinning around and then settled down, I said, what's happening now? And it said, each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future. This is your destiny resetting itself around what you've removed. And I said, well, how did I know I could do that, pull that gear out, removing that future moment? And it literally said, why else are you here? And I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what this place is. And it said, you're in the in-between. I said, in between what? He said, everything, the impossible now between the past and the future. And I said, I'm not sure I understand. And he said, it's impossible in its short duration, yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. Do you remember who you are in the world to which your body belongs? And I'll tell you, that's when I realized I had been depersonalized down to zero. If someone had come up to me and said, if you stay any longer, you can't go back, I said, go back where? to your family. What family? I didn't even know who Jim was at that point. And I said that, and it said, then you see the truth and how the past is dust. And I said, okay, you know, why some of these gears, these futures that I touch make me sick and not others? And it said, all choices have unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. The pain each brings is your guide. And I said, well, where are the gears that feel good? And it said, you're not here to feel good. And then I saw a gear pass by that represented, you know, happy grandchildren one day at an amusement park. So obviously I let that one pass by. But I came to understand that this was an opportunity for me to pretty much stack the deck for the rest of my life. That through this feel, and I hate to say it, not using a moral compass, but by using pain, I was able to feel around in my destiny, if you will, identify choices that would be bad choices to make and remove them so that one day when I get to where that crossroads of decision is, I will proportionately have a greater number of good decisions I can choose from rather than to be tempted perhaps by some that are, let's just say, morally or financially ambiguous. So that's what I did. I just over and over kept removing these, we'll call them bad gears or bad decisions. And at some point I looked around and saw this huge pile of growing gears. And I said, well, it's starting to look like if I don't have a bad future, I have no future at all. Even though I'm feeling less pain, you know, that's left in my destiny, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And I said, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. You know, your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. I said, well, I don't know how comforting that is. And it said, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. You won't know they're wrong until after they pass. Since right or wrong are variables over which you have no control, the answers to what come tomorrow are a waste. 
better is understanding the beauty of how everything fits and refits together. And I said, okay, well, what am I missing here in my lack of understanding? He said, what is clearly before you? Grace. No one deserves salvation. It can only be given by grace. It is your birthright, but it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. And then said a couple more things, and I said, you know, this fixing my future is painful, and it is a little shaming that I'm not using a moral compass, and I'm only guided by pain. And I said, I don't even know where or when these futures happen. And I said, you know, it's not important when or what. It said it's more important. You know, so it's more important that you realize that your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world is not as painful as carrying the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. And then it said something very profound to me. I said, it's as if this place was designed that I can do one thing and one thing only with no chance to screw it up. And it said, if those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. And uh, then it finally said, you know, just everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And I said, gosh, what's gentle about all this? And it said, uh, the final thing it said was, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. And with that, I said, I think I can live with this now. And it pretty much kicked me out at that point. Wow. Well, <laughs> I know, heavy duty. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so many questions. First of all, you keep saying it. Was it God? I believe it was. You know, in, in, a, in a current society of <laughs> ambiguity around that, I will just start, go put my neck out there and say, sure, yeah, I believe I, it was God. I mean, that's what, that's what I would have thought as well, based on how you described it all. Um, I'm welcome to be proven wrong, but I'm going with that for now. Yeah. Uh, was it, was this experience, Jim, predetermined? I mean, we talked about your out-of-body experiences prior to all of this. We talked about some of your other experiences throughout your life prior to this. Do you think that you were being guided to this particular near-death experience, this particular, uh, um, removal from your physical understanding was this a path that you were set on years ago that led you to that particular moment? You know, I do. I, I do, especially the more I've chewed on it, you know, in the three and a half years since I had my crash. I think that if we look at it from the outside, I think anybody who has a near-death experience, it could look like some random event that occurred due to an unfortunate accident or illness or, or you know, turn of fate. But I think if you look at it from the inside, it was probably the next most natural step in our own personal evolution. Because one thing I've learned is here in the world, we see life through the filters we want. You know, we look in the mirror, we say, ah, that's a good-looking guy, you know, and, and he's the most competent guy, and there's no sweeter sound than the sound of our own name. But over on the side, we see life through the filters we need. And if we were to look in a mirror there, it's going to be the mirror of truth, we don't have any ego filters to <laughs> filter what's coming back. We're going to get it warts and all. And that can be pretty humbling, but it is what we need to see. 
you, since you had that experience and you've been talking about your experience, you must have uh, had conversations with other people that have had near-death experiences. And when you began telling us about this, you said, you know, there was no tunnel. You know, there are certain things that a lot of people have in common with their near-death experience. Have you found any, anyone that has uh, a similar story with their near-death experience that, that, that comes close to the, how you just described yours? It's interesting you say that. Uh, in general, no. However, um, on the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, org site, there is one uh, near-death experience recounted by someone named Wilson, and in there he talks about seeing something like a water wheel coming across this field toward him, and each one of the paddles represented a different version of him in a different reality. And as it came up and was slapping him, he was momentarily in each one of those lives. And there was just something about that on a raw emotional level that took me right back to my experience. And what's interesting, the person who forwarded it to me felt that would occur. And yet, for the person who relayed that story, they were so terrified of the experience, they said, I don't want anybody to contact me about this. I don't plan on talking about it or anything, and I I get that. It it could be very unsettling for some people. Um, I just feel that, that you know that was part of the grace I was given is to just accept it as reality, understand what my mission was, and get on with it. This is probably a minor point in the scheme of things, based on what you've just told us. But how long were you in the coma? And how long do you think that particular experience lasted? Was it a blink of an eye, or were you there throughout the duration of your coma? I was there for the duration of my coma here, which was one week. But there literally told me I was there for a split second. And I, I thought about that, and in, in a way it could kind of make sense. I mean, with the, if you go with some assumptions like here, you know, living in our bodies, we're we're more mass than we are light, but as you go to the higher planes, and through them, higher and higher, you become less mass and more light. Well, Einstein's equation, E equals MC, e equals MC squared, pretty much says that for light, there is no time. So it makes sense that when we go to a place where we are more light and less mass, time might flow more slowly until you know we get, let's say, so pure and we're pure light that we're, we're, there is no time at all. So again, you know, maybe I'm reaching, I don't know, but I'm just sort of you know, of course, trying to integrate this experience into my life, and that means integrating it with, you know, studies in physics and math, and like you say, with each new realization of quantum mechanics, we're going, wow, this this is just getting better all the time. So you, you said a lot when you were detailing the experience itself, but when you look back particularly, how do you, how would you sum up the message? What were you meant to leave there with? Well, the the main two things it said to me at the end were everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. But the whole process of what I was going through when I was there was basically on an intuitive level understanding the causality of things, you know, how things, how the sowing and reaping works, how the law of karma works, how, you know, when to act and when not to, and how to act and not generate karma, you know, by not having intention or desire toward an outcome and not thinking you're the doer. It really was, a lot of it was about letting go. Uh, there was one time it said, all the force of will you'll ever need is found in the art of letting go, for no one and no thing can stand before the brilliance of a truly naked soul. 
So there's a lot there. And, you know, in our world where we're chasing for that one more thing, I need one more degree, I need one more nice car, nice suit, or nice girl on my arm, or country club membership in order to get ahead, we'll be chasing for that one more thing with our last breath. Well, maybe what we should do is instead of chasing after that one more thing by which everyone else seems to profit, maybe we should say, you know what, I think I have everything I need right here, right now. Let's just practice being still, Let's think non-linearly. Let's look from a totally different approach, and let's just look at whatever uncertainty faces us straight in the eye and know that we're more than that. As you were sent, as you said, you were kind of kicked out of there after the messages were given to you and you spent that amount of time there. What happened to you physically, and do you remember coming back into your body and um, starting to have that physical experience again? You know, it it wasn't too bad. I, I actually, I would say it was a week after coming out of my coma before I had any real memory, and I was already in the rehabilitation hospital. And probably because they had me pretty loaded up on painkillers, I, I didn't feel too badly. But, you know, I looked down at my right leg, and it was in this big cage. Um, I found out, you know, I found out about some other injuries I'd had that were not apparent to me at the time, but were healing. I, um, I'll say this, that you know, when they talk about people having near-death experiences, sometimes they, they get a little amped up on psychic abilities. You know, if they weren't psychic before, they are now. If they were, they're more so. I won't say I come back, you know, reading tea leaves or glowing in the dark or anything like that, but the one thing that definitely seemed to get, you know, the volume turned up on was a sense of empathy with people. And one day, um, the first person I shared my ND with was my morning nurse. She, Her name was Jen, and she was totally the A-team. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody taking care of people better than she could. And I said to her, I said, you know, I have this strange memory just cycling through my head over and over with more detail. Can I share it with you? She said, sure. So I, she was the first person I shared with exactly what I've shared with you and your listeners right now, my experience in the in-between. And as I told her, she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, because I don't want you to die. And I said, why? She said, because you're magical. And I said, okay, what do you mean by that? She goes, everybody here at the hospital gets one doctor a day for 15 minutes because we're all so busy. I said, yeah, everybody knows that. She said, for some reason, you have three to five doctors in here for an hour and a half a day. And I walk by listening in, like, what are they talking about? And y'all are talking about everything other than your medical case. One had once you to be in business with him so bad he has you on international conference calls in the middle of the night with your leg up in the air. And she said, I've never seen anything like that. And so this was that empathy reaching out. And I think, uh, you know, when it said everything is interconnected, I think that's what people were feeling was a sense of connection that we're all desperately hungry for. And honestly, that's, that's continued in a number of ways since then. And it's actually very nice because... It is nice to connect with people. It's nice to, when you talk to people, to feel like you're talking to the highest potential in them you can imagine because you may be the only person in their life who's ever believed in them in that way. And so you may have lifted them up and you may be a turning point in that person's life. So these are those small things that come out of it. You uh, you said you were in the rehabilitation hospital for a week before you started to get have memories of your experience. 
Did you yes. recognize what it was right away, or did it take a while? To, <laughs> I mean, memories are one thing, but understanding what those memories are uh, is something else. How long did it take you to really figure out that you'd had something what would be no less than a very spiritual experience? Right. Well, thanks, JV. That is a great question. I think I knew I had a spiritual experience right then. I was like, holy cow. This is because the, the, the gravity of it was just almost pushing out of my body to want to talk about it with people. But at that time, I knew about out of body experiences, but I wasn't very conversant with near death experiences. So I, I hadn't really put that together yet. It was in coming home, sitting on the couch or up in my bed, um, you know, starting to try to research this that I, I learned about near-death experiences. And then I thought, well, did I go to purgatory? Because it had that look to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's not like there was suffering going on there other than that nausea I felt. But in terms of the way it looked, I could have certainly said, oh, yeah, that's purgatory. But it turned out that, you know, through deeper research, it wasn't. And, you know, to, to accompany my research on the Internet, I all of a sudden started, uh, you know, listening to some YouTube programs and then downloaded some audio books. And there's this one prolific researcher, I think she's put out almost 20 books, named P.M.H. Atwater. She's 83 years old, and she is a dynamo in this world. And it was one of her books where she started describing the kind of near-death experience people who are in car crashes or suffer from falls have, and it started to identify with my experience. And then she started to really color it in, saying it looks like this, it looks like that, it's a gray and colorless place. And then she literally started using phrases and language that I learned on the other side. She said in between, and she uses it 31 more times in her book after that. She talked, whereas I mentioned the impossible now, she uses the eternal now. And let me tell you, I came back home, got on a got on the call with her, and she and I have become friends, and I do consider her to be a mentor. Oh, wow. Um, One of the things that people will say when you tell a story like this and you share this experience, and we've had others on our show that have talked about near-death experiences, and you always have some people say, how do you know this wasn't a hallucination or something medically induced? or Well, you know, any any one of 50 different explanations. How do you know? Well... Okay, they, they estimate that maybe 5% of the world's population have had NDEs. That's about 380 million people, which is about 60 more million people than live in the United States. Mm-hmm. And yet, out of that pretty large population, a tremendous percentage have these similar hallmarks, again, of going through a tunnel, of seeing dead loved ones, of speaking with angelic beings, having that life review, kind of like Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, yeah, yeah. and then maybe giving, you know, getting a big message. And then they come back and realize, this ain't Kansas anymore, you know, and I'm not Dorothy. This has all changed. And and then they, you know, have the typical after effect challenges, including blowing up light bulbs, televisions, computers, and all that. But I'll say this, um, I don't know that there's any one thing that can cause a hallucination with that much regularity uh, throughout. And when I think of a hallucination, I might think of something that could be a little bit random, and I haven't yet heard of an NDE where God told anybody to come back and be a serial killer. So I'm going mm. with the fact that it wasn't a hallucination. And like I said, too, you know, when, when you're sitting there and you start and you're put, putting it together, when you start to see some of these after effects of, uh, like I said, you know, electronic anomalies, electronic messaging anomalies, you start to say, okay, this doesn't seem like a hallucination. 
And then you start have to work on integrating it into your life, and I think that's a process that probably goes on for the rest of your life of making sense out of it, coping with it, asking what comes next, and just dealing with it. When you finally recognize what had happened, uh, obviously you had some physical healing to do. I'm not sure how long that took, but it probably took a while, given what you had been through. But at some point, you started to take what you had learned and experienced in that near-death experience and incorporate it into your life. How did that start? You know, a lot of it was uh, by sharing my story with people, really. Uh, you know, we had a, a local group here, um, part of the IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. They have local groups all over the world. And I found one in Connecticut, and I went. And the first couple of times I just listened to people talk about these things, and I said, well, I could maybe be interested in sharing my story. And honestly, when I got up to share it, something just seemed to fill the room. And I can't really explain it, but it felt good. And a lot of people came up and said it felt good. So that was a natural encouragement to keep digging in further, to listen to other more sage souls about you know what this experience is all about and and some of the more subtle aspects of it. And then, of course, just to work through my own stuff, you know, like, you know, the 65, 78% of people who have these get divorced. And is that yeah, true? It's, it's is a, that... That's, yeah, it's like a 50% greater than the national epidemic average of 53%. Wow. Why do you suppose yeah, that is? What it just changed people's well, it changes people so much? You're, yeah, you're you're changed that fundamentally to where your spouse says, "Where did my spouse go?" You look uh-huh. like them, but yeah. you're not them. Yeah. Because your, your values have changed, the way you react to things have changed. I would generally say most people are more compassionate, maybe more patient, maybe less judging. And then you start, as, as you are faced with these challenges, you're starting to analyze what is the glue that holds relationships together. And a lot of times it's not very good glue. It's not very strong glue, and it yeah. doesn't take much for it to come apart. And I know that um, in one counseling session, I just made a real strong point of it. I said, you know, our marriage vows say till death do us part. What happens when one of us dies? No matter that we return, our promise to each other is broken. The only reason we stay together now is because we choose to. And, you know, that's kind of one of those hard-biting truths, but sometimes people just don't give you much choice than to give it to them with both barrels. Now, you had described yourself as being a spiritual person. Are you more spiritual since the NDE than prior? Yeah, the way I would characterize it is, yes, I was spiritual before my near-death experience, but honestly, it was like, um, I would just say everything I knew, you know, aside from the few experiences I've already recounted, most of it was intellectual learning, right? And you look for opportunities to see it present itself as you live life and do good and all these things. But after the near-death experience, it's like it's woven into your being. You know, there's a, there, there are ways now that I might react that I don't have to go get one of my, you know, Eastern books to say, okay, this is what they had to say about it. I'll simply react with my own words. Later on, I might see a reference to it in the book. And I'll say, yeah, that's exactly how it's saying it. So that's good. And I think part of that is anytime we're presented with an intriguing, sometimes ambiguous truth, if we stretch toward it, we're going to look for instances in our lives to sort of fill in those gaps with. And we might even try and practice that truth and then fill it in through the activities of our days. In this way, we come to own that truth 
so that when one day we repeat it, it's in our own words based on our own experience, and that gives us a certain authority when we're sharing it that you just don't have when it's counterfeit, when it's something you just read and memorized. What type of people, or maybe uh, what problems that people are experiencing are most affected and most, um, I'm not sure what the word, I guess affected is the right word, uh, by you sharing this story with them? What types of things you know, can you, I mean, obviously you can help people. What have sure. you noticed? Well, some, pe- some people have reported healing, but that's not something I really focus on. Really, the trick to it isn't sitting down with a willful intention to do anything. When I share my story and I feel something, it's more like, okay, the flow is starting to come through from the other side. Get out of the way. And the more of me that gets out of the way, the more pure the flow is. And that's that's what I'm after. Because when the flow comes into the room, it has the intelligence to do what needs to be done. Somebody may have a back pain, and that's fine. Or somebody may have a migraine, and that goes away. But somebody may need maybe just really down and out, need to feel connected to something bigger than themselves in order to feel lifted up out of that. And they will. And it's just really kind of interesting to see the myriad ways in which people are touched by it and are helped according, again, like we said, over on the other side, it's all based on what you need. And so that's what comes through, and it gives them what they need, and everybody seems to benefit in that way. And, it, and it's great to be part of that process. And am I right to assume that your book was an extension of that by telling the story of your life prior to the experience, talking about the experience, and then talking about the changes in your life after the experience? This puts it into black and white, uh, literally, so that people can draw inspiration from it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm already starting on the second book, which is going to be called The Practice in Between, The Art of Letting Go. And so what we're going to do is start walking down you know, the path of how we can really make this real and, and let people really see what it can do and do for themselves, and that they can do it. This book is called The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. When is the second book going to be released? Have you started that? Yeah, I've started it, and I'm presenting its concept at a big uh, national, I'm sorry, yeah, big uh, annual near-death experience summit at the end of uh, July, beginning of August, held by Tricia Barker out in Texas. And I'm hoping to have my book finished around the end of August and have it go into editing to be ready uh, for the end of September, maybe beginning of October. And there will be, again, the accompanying um, audio version as well as the electronic version. One of the things that I am very acutely aware of is our audience. There are a lot of people, particularly in times of difficulty like we're experiencing now around the world, but also in this country, um, you know, a lot of people uh, have lost hope. A lot of people are disillusioned, and a lot of people are hurting. What kind of uh, succinct advice can you give folks listening tonight that uh, you can draw from your experience? Yeah, and, and I, my heart goes out to, to everybody who's going through that challenge right now, and I know a lot of us are, probably yeah. more than ever, um, because of, you know, between COVID and no work and just, you know, the restlessness of society in general. I mean, Buddha said it best, you know, when, when we're attached to things that are changing, that's going to probably lead to some suffering. But if we're attached to those things that are permanent, that's going to lead to happiness. And I think, you know, in our 
ephemeral society that, like I said, is chasing the one more thing or it's chasing, you know, no, you know, stability of all sort when we seem to be increasingly unstable. It's going to be really hard to find happiness in that because um, people don't know that what was true yesterday is true today. I would honestly say just try to take time to be still, to meditate, to find your center, and to really get in contact with that eternal part within us, the part that was, you know, that showed up on our first breath and will be here with us on our last breath, because everything else is changing. And it's like the in-between said to me that um, removing your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world isn't as painful as carrying the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. So I think, again, it's a lot about letting go. The book is called The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. Where can people find it once again? You can find it on Amazon. Uh, pretty soon it'll be in Barnes & Noble as well. But on Amazon you can get the uh, audio version, you can get the electronic version, or you can get the print version. Like I said, give me a couple of days. We're redesigning the cover, and we'll pop it back up there for you. But I would very much appreciate uh, if people could... Uh, get the book, and if you do and you like it, I would love to see a, a review on Amazon. Those are always helpful for people. And there's more information about your story, your work on the website? Yes. If you go to inbetweenproductions.com, you can, first of all, read the overview of my story, a little more about my background, and then uh, the media links page, of which this one will certainly be at the top of that list. And then um, there's another page if you want to reach out to me, if you want to contact me, and maybe we could set up a time to talk, or if you want to tell me about your experience, any kind of sharing you want to do, I'm here, and I'm, and I'm glad to uh, to get to know your experience and speak to it and listen. Well, Jim, thank you for sharing your experience with us tonight and your wisdom and uh, your obvious compassion. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope you'll agree to come back sometime. JV, thank you so much. I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I like the uh, I like everything about your show. I like seeing you sitting in your studio there. I love seeing uh, your audience over on the side and their their texts back and forth. I really think you have a a great thing here, and it just the energy feels great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And you hit the nail on the head. We have a great energy in our audience, and they're a great group of people. So we will have you back again. It's Jim Bruton. The website is inbetweenproductions.com, and the book is called The In Between: A Trip of a lifetime. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.